Fantastic. Well, I think most parents are back from taking their children to kids' church. So we'll make a start. It's my privilege to bring the word this morning. But right at the start of um, my talk this morning, I feel like I need to start with an apology. So you may remember that last year... um, during kind of there was quite a lot going on, like politically in the country, there was a lot of turmoil, and uh, so kind of often on a Sunday night we would meet and we would pray, and and it was like the very next day we would see things happen. You know, somebody would resign, or there'd be some kind of major development. Now, last Sunday, um, for entirely for comic effect, I attempted a Scottish accent. <laughs> And I may have said some things which possibly reinforced some cliches and stereotypes about Scottish people. And then, the very next day, the First Minister of Scotland announced her intention to have a second independence referendum. Now, only a fool would say those two things weren't linked. And so I feel like I'm, I, might, I, I should apologise if in some way I have contributed to the breakup of the United Kingdom and I will be sending a letter to that effect to the Queen. <laughs> Having said that, because I'm a kind of glass half full kind of guy, I do wonder whether there's some opportunity there. You know, if I bring out my comedy German accents this morning, will that help with the Brexit negotiations? What do we think? Could go either way, I guess. It's something that I've thought about for a while, actually, because you know that I'm committed to my art as a, as a preacher. And so I do wonder whether, you know, to get that kind of added sort of push home, really, of a message, whether, you know, somehow adopting different accents may help with that. You know, so if we're, for example, talking about the love of God, you know, if we do a French accent, will that help to land the message? You know, I think if you, if you kind of want one of those messages which is really kind of hammering a point home, that's when you bring out the South African, isn't it? You know, come on, people, we've got to take to the street. We've got to get out there. You know, I think there's definitely more we could do with accents. I'll stop now, don't worry. <laughs> this morning, we are uh, starting a new series, which is called Spot the Difference. And uh, it's really looking at the the way that Jesus impacted people, and particularly the disciples and the twelve. You know, when we first encounter Jesus' twelve, you know, when he calls them, they are, you know, fairly uneducated, you know, not necessarily clued up. They wouldn't be necessarily the twelve people you would choose to change the world. And yet, by the end of Jesus' ministry and the start of the book of Acts, they are transformed people. So what happened between those two points? What helped them to get it? What was it that Jesus added to them? What was it that Jesus took away that made that difference, that made that change? I suppose it's a bit like, you know, imagine that you have a shiny new BMW, a shiny new BMW. And maybe there are some people here who do have a shiny new BMW, and we'll pray for deliverance for you after, that's fine. But imagine you've got a shiny new BMW, and then your 16-year-old child 
turns 17. What is it going to take for you to hand over the keys of your shiny new BMW to your 17-year-old? Now, I want to suggest to you, actually, you're probably going to be looking for something more than the fact that they can reverse around a corner and stay half a meter within the curb. You're probably going to want something more than they know what the legal depth is on the tread of a tyre or any other thing that is required to pass their driving test. You're going to want to see something in terms of their attitude, in terms of their respect to your shiny new BMW. You're going to want to see an understanding and an intelligence and an approach to driving that goes beyond the driving test. Well, it's a bit like that with Jesus and his disciples. Before he hands over the keys, before he says, you know, these things that I've come to do, you're going to do it. What is it that needs to change? And it's not just about passing a test and learning some tools and learning some techniques. Something has to change deep within. And that's what we're thinking about in this uh, series that we've called Spot the Difference. This morning, I'm going to look at an account Um, which is um, kind of really special because it appears in all four of the Gospels and it's the feeding of the 5,000. And I'm going to look at it in Mark's Gospel. And one of the reasons for that is because um, out of all the Gospel writers, Mark, I think, brings out this contrast between Jesus and his disciples. You know, the Gospels are full of contrasts. It's kind of one of the ways in which we learn what things are like because we understand what they're not. So Matthew, for example, there is a contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the Lord. Jesus is not religious and outward and just going through the motions like these Pharisees. And in Mark's Gospel, kind of one of the things that we see is the contrast between Jesus and his disciples, the ways in which they are not like Jesus, the ways in which they don't understand and they don't get it. And so today we're going to look at the account of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark's gospel, and we're going to identify some things, some ways in which they're going to have to change to be the people to whom Jesus gives the keys. So we're going to read the account in Mark chapter 6. We're going to read from uh, verse 30, and the words should appear on the screen. So the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Let's pray, shall we? 
Father, we thank you that your word is like fire and is like a hammer that breaks rock. We pray today, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, that the fire and the hammer of your word would get through all our defense mechanisms, all our pre-existing thoughts and ideas and excuses, and get right to the heart of our lives so that we can be like those disciples who change, that we could be like those people who are willing to take the keys and who are able, Lord, to do all that you ask of us. Lord, we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this account, one that I, I guess is fairly familiar, tells how the disciples come to Jesus. So they've been on a mission trip. Jesus has sent them out, and they've come back to Jesus, telling of all that's kind of been going on. And the crowd are surrounding them. So Jesus says, come on, we'll, we'll get away to a place that's quiet. We'll get some rest. We'll get some food. Just have a bit of time. And they try to do that, but the people follow them. And they find out where they're going, and they get there ahead of them. And then Jesus, when he kind of comes there, rather than saying, hey, guys, you know, we, we, need, we need a bit of, bit of time out, or can you give us five? Jesus responds with compassion, and he teaches them. And uh, the disciples kind of, you know, being very practical, they recognize it's getting late, these people need to eat, say to Jesus, send them away so they can go and buy food. And Jesus challenges them and says, no, you give them some food. And then we kind of uh, come to the the miraculous feeding, about 5,000 men and more women and children are fed as a result. Now, last week I was talking about the fact that the the Bible is like a, a mirror, it describes itself as a mirror. So when we look at it, we, we see something of ourselves. And I think it would be a really kind of um, interesting, uh, I suppose, kind of psychological experiment to, to do something about when we read the Bible, who is it that we connect with? Who is it that we relate to or identify with? So, for example, if you take a, uh, an account like uh, David and Goliath, I think most of us, if we read the account of David and Goliath, would relate with David. We would identify with him. We would recognize all the ways in which maybe we feel weak and we feel small, like external things are are big and overwhelming, that we feel like we haven't got the resources to take this on, but God will enable us and make us able. And that's, that's great, and that's all true. I suspect not many of us, our first reading of that is to think about the ways in which we're like Goliath the ways in which actually we, we rely on our strength, in which we kind of can bully and intimidate others, in which we kind of don't think that we need God because we are able. And there's a real kind of maturity in being able to see the whole and kind of get that bigger perspective. And as we come to this story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, I don't know about you, but it kind of feels like the first response and the first connection and identification is with the crowd. They're coming to Jesus in need, and Jesus is meeting their need. He's meeting their spiritual need. He's meeting their physical need. And Jesus does that. And, you know, I'm sure most of us in this room have experienced that. But I want to say to you this morning that as we approach this passage this morning, we're not looking to identify with the crowd. We're looking to identify with the disciples. Because the crowd are the ones who come to Jesus and say, Jesus, meet my need, and then they go away again. We are about so much more than that. The crowd and the disciples are very different. The crowd comes and it goes. The disciples 
remain with Jesus. The crowd are focused on their own needs and wanting to hear from Jesus. The disciples are those whom Jesus is transforming to meet the needs of others. The crowd are just a random gathering of people. The disciples are a team. The the crowd are those who just kind of hear the words but don't understand it. The disciples are those who Jesus works to explain everything he says, to understand what's going on behind the scenes. The crowd leave Jesus when times are tough. The disciples stick with him. The crowd carry on like they were before. The disciples change and are transformed, and they are the ones who get the key. So I want to say this morning, in looking at this passage, we are not the crowds. We are the disciples. And maybe you're here this morning, and actually, you just want to be the crowd. You just want to come to Jesus to have your needs met, and then go home and get on with your life. Well, I want to suggest, really just following on from last week, that that is not the best. That's not God's best for you. That is not the fullness and the richness of the life that God has for you. I'd also suggest this is probably not the easiest church to be the crowd in. If you just want to be the crowd, there's probably easier places to be sitting than here on a Sunday morning because we're about disciples, about being disciples and about making disciples. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to consider what happened or what was the need for those, for the 12, to move them from being members of the crowd to being Jesus' followers and disciples. And uh, in, in kind of considering this, it's not because we see that they've got it, but this passage highlights two or three things. ways in which they need to change, ways in which they are like the crowd at the minute and Jesus is challenging them to be something different. And when we see them leading the church, changing the world in the book of Acts, they are things that they have got. And for me, the key question is this, who is going to pay the bill? Who's going to pay the bill? And my first point is that it's pay up. So, so the disciples say to Jesus, you know, all, here are all these people that have come to you. You need to, you know, send them away so that they can get something to eat. And Jesus says to them, no, you give them something to eat. And their response is really interesting, I think, how they say it. So they say to him in verse 37, that would take eight months of a man's wages Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And it feels to me in reading that, that their their response is not, um, you know, it's not kind of practical. It's like, how are we, you know, how are we going to go and bring all of this food back to these people? You know, are are there enough shops to get this? Saying, you know, I don't think Ocado delivers here, Jesus. I think we're out of the delivery area. Their argument is not practical. It feels to me like there is a sense of offense there that are you expecting us to pay eight eight months' wages to give these people food? Are you expecting us to pay for that? But as well as the kind of financial cost of feeding these people, the disciples are already paying a cost in what's going on. So when they come back from their missionary journey, Jesus says, we're going to get away and we're going to 
get some rest, and we're going to get some food. And then when, just when they're, they're there, and that's what they're expecting, here is this crowd. And Jesus doesn't send them away. He indulges them, and he teaches them. So the disciples are already paying a cost, aren't they? Because you know, what they thought was going to happen in terms of getting some quality time with Jesus, where they were going to get rest and refreshment, they're already losing out on this. And this question of who pays the cost, I think is a really big one. And it's one of the things that um, I sometimes talk to guys in my city group about. Because, you know, there can be all sorts of things in life that kind of come our way or that we face. And there's a, a price to be paid. Now, sometimes that's a, like a, a literal thing, isn't it? I had to get a new handbrake this week. That, that cost me 60 quid. So I have to find that 60 quid. You know, that 60 quid that I can't spend on something else. There's a price that I have to pay. But equally, there's all sorts of other things where it might not be a financial cost. It might be a time cost or an energy cost. So suddenly there's lots of demands at work, for example, or there is a, a need in my wider family, or, you know, I've decided to get some work done, or whatever it might be. And there's a, there's a cost that needs to be paid, not just a financial cost, but a, a, a literal, a, a kind of time and resource cost. So, for example, you know, I've got this thing, I've got lots of work going on, oh, so I can't go to Citigroup this week, or I can't go to the prayer meeting, or I can't make this meeting, or I can't meet up with that person because I've got this work going on. And, and the, the kind of challenge in the question there is, who's going to pay the cost? And when we say, um, you know, I can't go to city group, I can't go to prayer, I can't do that, we're saying the church is going to pay the cost. You know, it's not that we're literally going to Pastor Clive and say, can I have 500 quid for my new boiler? Um, or, or, you know, a, a kind of literal cost, although whoever borrowed the batteries from the PA desk, if they want to return them, that would be really good. <laughs> but but the, our expectation on who pays the cost is, well, church will pay. Or, you know, my city group will pay, my relationships, the call of God on my life will pay. And it's one of those things, I, I was so impressed with uh, John and Joy a few years ago, actually, just in terms of when they bought their house, which I, I think um, estate agents would probably call a project, is that, is that fair enough? There was an awful lot of work that needed doing on that house, an awful lot of work. It, would, it probably would have been easier to knock it down and build it again, let's be honest. But so consistently, John and Joy you know, they didn't say, oh, yeah, we're not going to be at church on Sunday because we've got to do stuff with the house or we're getting a delivery and we're not going to be at cell. Just, you know, so regularly they would be at, at cell group till 10 o'clock, half past 10, whatever it was. And then they would go and spend three hours on their house till two o'clock in the morning. They didn't expect city group to pay. They paid the cost in terms of their sleep. It wasn't that, that you know, John didn't come to church on a Sunday morning because he was doing stuff in his house. You know, it meant that he got up and he went to, <laughs> to his house at six o'clock on a Sunday morning and did four hours of work and then came to church. Do you understand the point I'm making? Who pays the cost? You know, when there's a, when there's a clash between kind of um, expectations on me, who is it that I expect to pay the cost. I want you to um, take a minute and talk to the person next to you and think about who, who brought you here this morning. Now, I don't mean, you know, Bob who drives the 39 bus, if it can indeed be called driving, because uh, I've been on that bus. But, but who are the people 
who have been involved in your life to get you to this point. Whether you've been a Christian 30 years or you're here this morning because you're curious or you're interested and you want to find out more about Jesus, who are the people who've been involved in that journey and what have they had to do? So just 60 seconds, talk to the person next to you or in twos or threes, kind of what has been required of people to get you to this point in your uh, journey with Jesus. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. I bet you there's some fascinating discussions there. There's all sorts of people probably who've been involved, some of whom we're aware of, some of whom we're not. But it's important to appreciate that on the one hand, you have Jesus who has all the resources of heaven available to him, whose blood is sufficient to pay for every curse, every sin, everything that afflicts our life, who has power and authority to make such a difference in our lives. And then you've got the crowd, the people who are helpless, who are harassed, who are like sheep without a shepherd. And between Jesus and the crowd stands people, One, two, three, more maybe. There is somebody standing in the gap that connects those crowds, that crowd to Jesus, that connected you to Jesus. And you are just one person. In the city of Newcastle alone, there are 285,000 people. In the Northeast, there's two and a half million people that live between Borough and Berwick. Who is going to pay the price and stand in the gap between those people? Who's going to put their hand up? And that's the, my second point. I want to move on from, um, from the first one. So first is pay up. The second thing is hand up. Because before we pay the cost, we need to take responsibility. So again, if we come back to the account that we read, the, the crowd, even the crowd, take responsibility and say, we are going to get ourselves to Jesus. And when they come and when Jesus sees them, he sees his responsibility I've got stuff to give to these people. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to give to them. But then the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you tell the people, Jesus, you take responsibility for telling the people to take responsibility for going and feeding themselves and sorting out their own food. They are the only ones who don't take responsibility. What Jesus says to them is, no, you feed the people. You feed the people because you need to take responsibility. Because unless you take responsibility for the need, then you don't take responsibility for the solution. And you don't get ownership. You know, before you own the miracle, you need to own the need. 
But when you own the need, then that miracle, you really recognize it and you see it because it's yours and it is personal. So Ben, a few weeks ago, was talking about the, the picture of the, you know, how churches are sometimes likened to um, football stadia, where you have 50,000 people in need of exercise, watching 22 people in need of a, a rest. And, uh, but we know, don't we, that, um, that just kind of getting somebody out of the crowd, out of the, the 50,000 and putting them on the pitch doesn't make them a player does it? You know, last week I talked about Moses and used that picture of going from the person who's like the, the, the kid who's scared every time the football comes near him because he doesn't know what to do and he's terrified, to going to that person who's saying, pass to me, give the ball to me. And that's what we mean when we're talking about taking responsibility, about trying to duck out of the way, but to say, yeah, I'm going to take responsibility. And you see it with some footballers, don't you? And they say, right, I'm going to, you know, nobody else is playing for this team. I'm going to play for this team. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to get the ball and I'm going to pass it and I'm going to take on that responsibility. We need to be those who take on responsibility. Before we can pay the price, we need to see it as our job to pay the price. It's like when you go out for maybe dinner with some colleagues or some friends and, you know, you'll put some money in at the end and then they say, oh, we're 20 pounds short. It all goes quiet, doesn't it? Who's going to put up their hand? So the disciples, they need to pay the cost, but they need to take responsibility. And so Jesus says to them, you know, you need to feed the people. And he says to them, you know, what have you got? What have you got to give them? But I guess the the real question there is not what have you got, but it's what have you got that you are willing to give them? And that brings us to our third point, which is soften up. Which is soften up. So Jesus when he sees the crowd, it says he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. The disciples' response is a bit different. And it's kind of one of the interesting things about Mark's gospel. He gives us some understanding of what's going on here with the disciples. So in the next um, section in Mark chapter 6, we read about um, the disciples on the lake where Jesus walks on the water. So the disciples get in the boat and it's stormy and it's windy and they're really struggling. And these are fishermen, you know, they know how to sail a boat. They're not just on a pedalo in Tynemouth or something like that. They know what they're doing, but they're terrified. And Jesus walks on the water and is kind of going past them. And they're even more terrified. And then Jesus stops and he steps into the boat and all the wind and all the waves calms down. And it says in, in Mark... Uh, chapter 6 and verse 53, sorry, 52. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. So this is like another contrast between Jesus and his disciples. Whereas he was moved with compassion, their hearts were hardened. And it's, it's a bit like this. So here I've got two buckets, and both of the buckets I've got water in, but they're in a very different state. And it's just like, you know, for, for Jesus, he sees the need of the people. And it's kind of like it drops into his heart with a satisfying plop. He receives it. He sees it. But for the disciples, you know, they, they see the people, but it bounces out. There's a very different response because their hearts are hard. 
And when the Bible talks about kind of hearts being hardened, there's kind of a couple of, of main uh, kind of interpretations of that. So one of them is where people are unresponsive to God. They're disobedient. They're not receiving what God is saying to them. So, you know, God is speaking, and all that's met with is hardness of heart. It bounces off. The other understanding is about response to people and seeing a need among people. And that need reaches out and bounces off. There's a hardness of heart. But Mark takes this a little bit further and he says, and he, he does it again later on in his gospel, he, he kind of uses this expression, hardness to heart, to mean that, that they're just not getting it. And really, it's a kind of combination of the, the two things about people and God. Because Jesus' heart and God's heart is to reach people in need, is to touch the crowd. And he is moved with love. And so he's calling his disciples to be like him and to respond to the need he sees. But instead, hardness of heart. And this is the diagnosis that Jesus brings to the, the situation and that's kind of highlighted here in Mark. Because before you pay the price and before you take responsibility to pay the price, actually, we need to have soft hearts that are moved by the things that Jesus is moved by. And part of our problem is sometimes we define things as being head issues, whereas actually their heart issues. So I, uh, I asked the doctor this week about what is harder, brain surgery or heart surgery? Well, in fact, they declined to answer that. Well, they, they said both are hard, but they would happily perform either on me, which uh, I'm not going to name them, but I think that was a bit harsh, particularly seeing as I gave her a cup of tea and a Kit Kat in the meeting last Sunday. I don't know which is, is harder, but I know that they're very different. And so it's important that we have the right diagnosis so we can get the right result and the right solution. And so I recognize in myself that sometimes I kind of think, oh, I really want to, to get the right strategy. I want to, you know, um, know how to connect with people and what the message is and what the right tool is. And, and the, the kind of reason that I'm, I'm kind of not more active in, in kind of mission and in kind of ministering to the needs of the crowd is because is I'm, I'm lacking that up here. But maybe the problem isn't what's up here. Maybe the problem is what's in here. The maybe before the strategy comes the willingness, comes the heart, so that I can see the people and see the need. And it goes plop. And not boying, that actually I can, you know, see the crowd and just think, oh, Lord, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to get down on my knees and pray. And I'm going to, you know, give up my comfort and engage with these people because something has landed in my heart. And you know what? That just mirrors what Jesus is about, doesn't it? It's, it's the heart of God. God was so impacted and so moved by the state of humanity, by people who you know, didn't know their right hand from their left, by people who just could, could not do anything but do wrong all the time, 
And he took responsibility, even though it was our fault, even though we'd rebelled against God and we were living independent. He took responsibility and said, I will pay the price. And today, if we want to be disciples of Jesus and not just the crowd, he's calling us to pay the price. I feel like, you know, I could probably say more about this, but I feel like actually we just need to respond and ask God to help us. But one of the incredible things is God is able to soften the hardest of hearts. He's able to take those, you know, um, boings and turn them into plops to make our hearts soft. Because this isn't just about a temperament, whether you're a heart person or a cognitive person. And this isn't even just about like the hardness of experiences you've had in your life, although all sorts of things can happen that will make our hearts hard and uh, can make us um, find it hard to trust. But there's something spiritual here because we're talking about a heart response that is willing to take responsibility and that's willing to pay the price just like Jesus did. We're talking about having soft hearts that belong to disciples and not just nice people in the crowds. And God is able, God is able to soften our hearts. God's grace is sufficient. And the Bible tells us that he pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So I wonder whether we can stop there and respond really to what God's saying to us this morning. And, um, you know, I'm not a... um, I'm really, I think this is what we need to pray about, about asking God to soften our hearts. And... um, do you know, I'm, I'm normally when in terms of kind of uh, getting a response, I'm, I'm not kind of a, a demonstrative preacher that kind of necessarily gets you to move around and do all sorts of things because I feel like often it's about kind of owning something and internalizing. But this morning when I was praying for this meeting, I felt like actually if we, if you're here this morning and you recognize I want God to, to soften my heart, you know, not, I'm not saying we can all be at different stages, can't we, in terms of our response and our heart. We could be moved by particular groups and but if, if uh, you know, if we want to go further, you know, I've got a heart for Auntie Florrie and Uncle Fred, but I want to have a heart for the crowds, or I want to have a heart for, for anyone and not just the people of my choosing. But wherever we're at, if you want God to soften your heart, I want to kind of ask you to, to really stand up and to kind of come to the front here. And I'm going to be down here as well because I want God to soften my heart. And I just felt like that's a response that we need to make this morning. And I don't know whether that's about taking responsibility or paying some kind of cost or whatever it might be. But I feel like if you want God to do something in your heart and to soften your heart so that you're somebody who is willing to take responsibility and willing to pay the price, well, let's come together and let's ask God to help us to do that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, we want to thank you for your heart for us. Lord, we want to thank you that we are only here today because you were willing, because you were moved with uh, compassion for us in the state of our sinfulness, because you saw us and you were willing to take responsibility to pay the price, even though it cost Jesus his life, even though he shed blood for us, he was willing to pay the price. And Lord, we want to say sorry for the times where we've allowed our hearts to be hard to be unmoved and unmoving and unyielding, where the word of God has bounced off us, where the need of people has bounced off us, where we have been uh, unwilling, Lord God, to, to you know, move aside from what we want 
and our hearts that are centered around ourselves and our comfort and our needs, Lord God, and to be moved with compassion by the call of God and the need of the crowd. And so, Lord, we say sorry. And we ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, we don't want to be, we don't want to remain in the crowd, Lord God. We want to be disciples and we want to help others to be disciples. We want to help move people from the crowd and bring them closer to you and equip them to be disciples. So Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you pour out your spirit on us this morning, Lord? Would you pour your love into our hearts? A love that can crack the hardest heart, that can melt the iciest of response. Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us this morning in the name of Jesus? Would you pour your love into our hearts by your spirit in Jesus' name? Lord, we need our hearts to be softened, Lord God. We're not gonna, we don't want to strategize, Lord God. We don't want to come up with a theory, Lord God. We want hearts that are melted by the power of God this morning, Lord. it's important that we remember you know the disciples changed their hearts were changed and if you're here this morning and you think oh, you don't know what I've been through you don't know the, the state of my heart inside me I, you're right I don't but I know God's greater if you're saying to God the you know, the power of my hardness is greater than the power of your ability to melt it. Then you don't understand God's power. You know, even his word is like fire that melts the hardest of hearts. It's like a hammer that breaks the hardest of hearts. Just that prayer, say, Lord, give me a soft heart. So powerful. God hears. God responds. Lord, I want to pray. I want to pray for us all, Lord God, that you would be thawing our hearts. And, and you know, that just as it happens, some stuff might come out. You know, just like when that, you know, when that bucket of ice thaws, it's going to make a mess on the floor. Lord, you know what? We, can, we are less concerned by the mess and more concerned by having that changed hearts. Of, 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 Lord, we don't want to be unmoved by your word and by your spirit. We don't want to be those like, like Israel in the desert who heard your voice, but their hearts were hard. 
We don't want to be those unmoved by the needs of the crowd, unwilling to stand in the gap, unwilling to take responsibility, unwilling to pay the price. So Lord,